Chapter Forty Four of the Titan by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A franchise obtained. The money requisite for the construction of elevated roads having been thus pyrotechnically obtained, the acquisition of franchises remained no easy matter. It involved, among other problems, the taming of Chaffee Thayer Sluss, who, quite unconscious of the evidence stored up against him, had begun to fulminate the moment it was suggested in various secret political quarters that a new ordinance was about to be introduced, and that Cowperwood was to be the beneficiary. "'Don't you let them do that,' Mr. Sluss observed Mr. Han, who, for purposes of conference, had courteously but firmly bidden his hireling, the mayor, to lunch. "'Don't you let them pass that if you can help it. As chairman or president of the city council, Mr. Sluss held considerable manipulative power over the machinery of procedure. Raise such a row that they won't try to pass it over your head. Your political future really depends on it. Your standing with the people of Chicago, the newspapers, and the respectable financial and social element will fully support you in this. Otherwise, they will wholly desert you. Things have come to a handsome pass when men sworn and elected to perform given services turn on their backers and betray them in this way. Mr. Han was very wroth. Mr. Sluss, immaculate, in black broadcloth and white linen, was very sure that he would fulfill to the letter all of Mr. Han's suggestions. The proposed ordinance should be denounced by him, its legislative progress heartily opposed in council. "'They shall get no quarter from me,' he declared emphatically. "'I know what the scheme is. They know that I know it.' He looked at Mr. Han, quite as one advocate of righteousness should look at another, and the rich promoter went away satisfied that the reins of government were in safe hands. Immediately afterward, Mr. Sluss gave out an interview in which he served warning on all aldermen and councilmen that no such ordinance as the one in question would ever be signed by him as mayor. At half-past ten on the same morning on which the interview appeared, the hour at which Mr. Sluss usually reached his office, his private telephone bell rang, and an assistant inquired if he would be willing to speak with Mr. Frank A. Cowperwood. Mr. Sluss, somehow, anticipating fresh laurels of victory, gratified by the front-page display given his announcement in the morning papers, and swelling internally with civic pride, announced solemnly, "'Yes, connect me.'" "'Mr. Sluss,' began Cowperwood at the other end, "'this is Frank A. Cowperwood.' "'Yes. What can I do for you, Mr. Cowperwood?' "'I see by the morning papers that you state that you will have nothing to do with any proposed ordinance which looks to giving me a franchise for any elevated road on the north or west side. That is quite true, replied Mr. Sluss loftily. I will not. Don't you think it's rather premature, Mr. Sluss, to denounce something which has only a rumored existence? Cowperwood, smiling sweetly to himself, was quite like a cat playing with an unsuspicious mouse. I should very much like to talk this whole matter over with you personally before you take an irrevocable attitude. 
It is just possible that after you have heard my side, you may not be so completely opposed to me. From time to time, I have sent to you several of my personal friends, but apparently you do not care to receive them. Quite true, replied Mr. Sluss loftily. But you must remember that I am a very busy man, Mr. Cowperwood, and besides, I do not see how I can serve any of your purposes. You are working for a set of conditions to which I am morally and temperamentally opposed. I am working for another. I do not see that we have any common ground on which to meet. In fact, I do not see how I can be of any service to you whatsoever. Just a moment, please, Mr. Mayor, replied Cowperwood, still very sweetly, and fearing that Sluss might choose to hang up the receiver. So superior was his tone. There may be some common ground of which you do not know. Wouldn't you like to come to lunch at my residence, or receive me at yours, or let me come to your office and talk this matter over? I believe you will find it the part of wisdom as well as of courtesy to do this. I cannot possibly lunch with you today, replied Sluss, and I cannot see you either. There are a number of things pressing for my attention. I must say also that I cannot hold any backroom conferences with you or your emissaries. If you come, you must submit to the presence of others. Very well, Mr. Sluss, replied Cowperwood cheerfully. I will not come to your office, but unless you come to mine before five o'clock this afternoon, you will face by noon tomorrow a suit for breach of promise, and your letters to Mrs. Brandon will be given to the public. I wish to remind you that an election is coming on, and that Chicago favors a mayor who is privately moral as well as publicly so. Good morning. Mr. Cowperwood hung up his telephone receiver with a click, and Mr. Sluss sensibly and visibly stiffened and paled. Mrs. Brandon, the charming, lovable, discreet Mrs. Brandon, who had so ungenerously left him, why should she be thinking of suing him for breach of promise? And how did his letter to her come to be in Cowperwood's hands? Good heavens, those mushy letters, his wife, his children, his church, and the owlish pastor thereof, Chicago, and its conventional moral religious atmosphere. Come to think of it, Mrs. Brandon had scarcely, if ever, written him a note of any kind. He did not even know her history. At the thought of Mrs. Sluss, her hard, cold, blue eyes, Mr. Sluss rose, tall and distraught, and ran his hand through his hair. He walked to the window, snapping his thumb and middle finger, and looking eagerly at the floor. He thought of the telephone switchboard just outside his private office, and wondered whether his secretary, a handsome young Presbyterian girl, had been listening as usual. Oh, this sad, sad world! If the North Side ever learned of this, and the newspapers, young MacDonald, would they protect him? They would not. Would they run him for mayor again? Never. Could the public be induced to vote for him with all the churches fulminating against private immorality, hypocrites, and whited sepulchres? Oh, Lord, oh, Lord! And he was so very, very much respected and looked up to. That was the worst of all. This terrible demon Cowperwood had descended on him, and he had thought himself so secure. He had not even been civil to Cowperwood. What if the latter chose to avenge the discourtesy? 
Mr. Sluss went back to his chair, but he could not sit in it. He went for his coat, took it down, hung it up again, took it down, and announced over the phone that he could not see anyone for several hours, and went out by a private door. Wearily, he walked along North Clark Street, looking at the hurly-burly of traffic, looking at the dirty, crowded river, looking at the sky and smoke and gray buildings, and wondering what he should do. The world was so hard at times, it was so cruel. His wife, his family, his political career. He could not conscientiously sign any ordinances for Mr. Cowperwood that would be immoral, dishonest, a scandal to the city. Mr. Cowperwood was a notorious traitor to the public welfare. At the same time, he could not very well refuse, for here was Mrs. Brandon, the charming and unscrupulous creature, playing into the hands of Cowperwood. If he could only meet her, beg of her, plead, but where was she? He had not seen her for months and months. Could he go to Hand and confess all? But Hand was a hard, cold, moral man also. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord! He wondered and thought and sighed and pondered, all without avail. Pity the poor earthling caught in the toils of the moral law. In another country, perhaps, in another day, another age, such a situation would have been capable of a solution. One not utterly destructive to Mr. Sluss, and not entirely favorable to a man like Cowperwood. But here in the United States, here in Chicago, the ethical verities would all, as he knew, be lined up against him. What Lakeview would think, what his pastor would think, what Hand and all his moral associates would think. Ah, these were the terrible, the incontrovertible consequences of his lapse from virtue. At four o'clock after, Mr. Sluss had wandered for hours in the snow and cold, belaboring himself for a fool and a knave, and while Cowperwood was sitting at his desk signing papers, contemplating a glowing fire, and wondering whether the mayor would deem it advisable to put in an appearance, his office door opened, and one of his trim stenographers entered, announcing Mr. Chafee Thayer Sluss. Enter Mayor Sluss, sad, heavy, subdued, shrunken, a very different gentleman from the one who had talked so cavalierly over the wires some five and a half hours before. Gray weather, severe cold, and much contemplation of seemingly irreconcilable facts had reduced his spirits greatly. He was a little pale and a little restless. Mental distress has a reducing, congealing effect, and Mayor Sluss seemed somewhat less than his usual self in height, weight, and thickness. Cowperwood had seen him more than once on various political platforms, but he had never met him. When the troubled mayor entered, he arose courteously and waved him to a chair. "'Sit down, Mr. Sluss,' he said genially. "'It is a disagreeable day out, isn't it? I suppose you have come in regard to the matter we were discussing this morning.' Nor was this cordiality wholly assumed. One of the primal instincts of Cowperwood's nature, for all its chicane and subtlety, was to take no rough advantage of a beaten enemy. In the hour of victory, he was always courteous, bland, gentle, and even sympathetic. He was so today, and quite honestly, too. 
Mayor Sluss put down the high sugar loaf hat he wore and said grandiosely, as was his manner even in the direst extremity, "'Well, you see, I'm here, Mr. Cowperwood. What is it you wish me to do, exactly?' "'Nothing unreasonable, I assure you, Mr. Sluss,' replied Cowperwood. "'Your manner to me this morning was a little brusque, and, as I have always wanted to have a sensible private talk with you, I took this way of getting it. I should like you to dismiss from your mind at once the thought that I am going to take an unfair advantage of you in any way. I have no present intention of publishing your correspondence with Mrs. Brandon.' As he said this, he took from his drawer a bundle of letters which Mayor Sluss recognized at once as the enthusiastic missives which he had some time before penned to the fair Claudia. Mr. Sluss groaned as he beheld this incriminating evidence. "'I am not trying,' continued Cowperwood, "'to wreck your career, nor to make you do anything which you do not feel that you can conscientiously undertake. The letters that I have here, let me say, have come to me quite by accident. I did not seek them. But since I do have them, I thought I might as well mention them as a basis for a possible talk and compromise between us." Cowperwood did not smile. He merely looked thoughtfully at Sluss, then, by way of testifying to the truthfulness of what he had been saying, thumped the letters up and down, just to show that they were real. "'Yes,' said Mr. Sluss heavily, "'I see.' He studied the bundle, a small, solid affair, while Cowperwood looked discreetly elsewhere. He contemplated his own shoes, the floor. He rubbed his hands and then his knees. Cowperwood saw how completely he had collapsed. It was ridiculous, pitiable. "'Come, Mr. Sluss,' said Cowperwood amiably. "'Cheer up. Things are not nearly as desperate as you think. I give you my word right now that nothing which you yourself or mature thought could say was unfair will be done. You are the mayor of Chicago. I am a citizen. I merely wish fair play from you. I merely ask you to give me your word of honor that from now on you will take no part in this fight, which is one of pure spite against me. If you cannot conscientiously aid me in what I consider to be a perfectly legitimate demand for additional franchises, you will at least not go out of your way to publicly attack me. I will put these letters in my safe, and there they will stay until the next campaign is over, when I will take them out and destroy them. I have no personal feeling against you, none in the world. I do not ask you to sign any ordinance which the Council may pass, giving me elevated road rights. What I do wish you to do at this time is to refrain from stirring up public sentiment against me especially if the Council should see fit to pass an ordinance over your veto. Is that satisfactory? But, my friends, the public, the Republican Party, don't you see? It is expected of me that I should wage some form of campaign against you, queried Sluss nervously. No, I don't, replied Cowperwood succinctly. And anyhow, there are ways and ways of waging a public campaign. Go through the motions, if you wish, but don't put too much heart in it. And anyhow, see some of my lawyers from time to time when they call on you. Judge Dickensheet is an able and fair man. So is General Van Sickle. Why not confer with them occasionally? Not publicly, of course, 
but in some less conspicuous way. You will find both of them most helpful. Cowperwood smiled encouragingly, quite beneficently, and Chafee, Thayer, Sluss, his political hopes gone glimmering, sat and mused for a few moments in a sad and helpless quandary. Very well, he said at last, rubbing his hands feverishly. It is what I might have expected. I should have known. There is no other way, but... Hardly able to repress the hot tears now burning beneath his eyelids, the Honorable Mr. Sluss picked up his hat and left the room. Needless to add that his preachings against Cowperwood were permanently silenced. End of chapter 44